Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, happy Labor Day weekend, Mercy Church. Uh, man, I want to take just a second and introduce you to the guy standing beside me, the latest addition to our Mercy staff team. Um, Jake Greer is joining our team here at Mercy Church as our executive director of ministries, and he has just started this week. Um, this is a brand new role for Mercy Church, one that our elder team has actually been looking to fill for about a year now. Um, Jake's going to oversee our growing staff team and provide the administrative support and expertise that we need as a church to help steward our resources that God has given us as well as we can. Y'all, this is a, it's a big deal uh, to the elders of Mercy Church, to me personally, y'all, that we are, uh, that we do a really faithful job of shepherding the body of Mercy Church. I've been burdened by that as we've grown as a church, and that's why Jake's here, uh, to help all of us use the gifts, skills, and abilities that God has given us uh, by using the gifts, skills, and Abilities God has given him um, to help the rest of us effectively shepherd as faithfully as we can. Um, Jake and his wife Meredith have been members here at Mercy for about a year and a half, um, and he's coming from a career in management in the private sector, but man, through a lot of um, prayer and talking, and then more prayer and more talking over um, a good period of time, it became clear uh, to both of us and to our elder team uh, that the Lord seems to be calling him into this role uh, for this time in our church, and we are, um, we're so excited for that. Uh, y'all, so he is, he and his family, they're, they're members here, they're a part of the Mercy family, but it can also be a really, uh, a, it's a big transition to join a church staff team. So I hope you'll do uh, your part to make them feel your support um, as they enter into this whole new endeavor together. All right. So Jake, welcome. We're glad you're here. Get to work. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Man. Nobody is more excited than me, I promise. Um, yeah, it's exciting, y'all. And I was thinking back on last weekend. Last weekend was a beautiful weekend for us as a church. Uh, we started a new series of sermons where we're walking through the book of Acts. And if you have your Bible, you can hop over to the book of Acts now. Uh, we're in this series, and, and we're talking about, we kind of introduced the idea that the church was never meant to be confined to a building, right? It was meant to be this living movement of people that practices the love of Christ with one another and then offers the hope of Christ to the rest of the world. And and I was just in... I was just moved by our worship gathering because I feel like last weekend embodied that movement mindset. And think about this. We had um, a baptism at our Providence Road campus. We commissioned new members who are joining in with the other members of the Mercy family on this movement. We commissioned out a short-term missions team to go take the gospel over to South Asia. And then we got to hear from one 
of our own members who's now living long-term overseas on the mission field. It's this beautiful picture of the living movement that we hope to be as a church. And on top of all that, uh, I know that for many of you, it was your very first weekend here at Mercy Church. I know that for a couple of reasons. We had 35 of you who let us know that it was your first time here. And I know it was also uh, the highest attendance we've ever had on a weekend at our church. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that are new around here. So listen, if you consider yourself new, or even if you've been around for a while, but just kind of been a spectator trying to figure out if this is the church for you, listen, I want to invite you to join us for starting point right after the worship service today, okay? Um, There you're going to hear more, uh, you'll hear more about this whole thing at the end of our service, but let me give you just the gist, okay? We believe God created you. We believe he loves you. We believe he has a purpose for your life. And we believe that he has designed you to figure out all that. That all this stuff about his love for you and and the kind of purpose he's created you for, he's created you to figure all of that out inside of a group of Christians in a local church. All right? So we want to at least extend an invitation to you to say, as long as you're here at Mercy today, you might as well take a step towards figuring out if Mercy Church is that church for you, okay? So we set up this little kind of low-risk reception for you called Starting Point that happens after the service. And again, you'll hear more about that. You'll hear in that thing just what Mercy Church is all about. I hope you join us, all right? Now, my hope for today as we get into our message is a little bit of a different one than normal because honestly, I'm preaching a past that's a little bit different than normal. I always pray that you come away. Every Sunday that you're here, you come away from Mercy Church worshiping God. All right, that's my hope. I'm not trying to get you to be impressed or unimpressed with the people on stage. I'm not asking you to rate your church like you rate a restaurant on Yelp or something like that. And if you do that, we're not here to collect your stars, all right? My, my prayer isn't that you just like it, your experience. It's always that, that the people here kind of fade into the background a little and the eyes of your heart are drawn up to see God and worship him rightly through what you see and hear. All right. Now this weekend, this weekend I've adjusted that prayer just a little bit because I've been praying that you would begin to sense the presence of God with you today through singing, preaching, through communion we'll do in a minute, that you wouldn't just learn about God but that you would sense his love, his greatness, his power, and all the hope that comes with his presence. Now, the way I was thinking about it, I had the chance a few years ago um, to do a really unique trip up into Central Asia, into the Hindu Kush mountain range, all right? We're way up there. All of a sudden, we're, we're taking a day's journey up into this really remote area, remote corner of the world. And after about a day's journey, we bust out into the Bamiyan Valley. Now, the Bamiyan Valley is this largely untouched area of the world by, by human hands, right? Largely untouched. And what you had were these beautiful, pristine, like color of blue type lakes that I had never seen before. Beautiful. And surrounding them were these mountains that were just way unlike anything this North Carolina boy had ever seen before, right? This is not the hills of the Appalachian Mountains. This was something altogether different. And there was this this moment. Look, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, never been to the Sistine Chapel, anything like that. But maybe you've been to some place like that. You know what I'm talking about? Where when you see something that's that big and that kind of awe-inspiring, you don't just see it, you 
feel it when you see it. Does that make sense? Um, you feel awe, you feel wonder, and it almost quiets you a little bit as you kind of marvel at it. Um, I felt similarly when I was invited to hear a sitting president several years ago give a speech. Um, the, the room was packed, secret service everywhere, and as this guy walks out onto stage and begins to address people, the power of the office this guy holds was so immense that you felt this sense of awe, like everything goes quiet and hangs on what this one guy says. The reason I'm kind of drawing that out is because I'm praying that you sense the presence of God here as we go into Acts 2. Because Acts 2 records the event known as Pentecost. Last week, if you were with us, we read Jesus' words in Acts 1, where he told the disciples, all right, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's going to come in a few days. So last week I said, we'll talk about it in a few days. Well, a few days have passed, right? Once he comes on you, Jesus said, you're going to receive power for the mission that I've given you to proclaim my message to the ends of the world. Today, in this scene in Pentecost, what we see is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit into the church. And as we walk through this scene, what we're going to see is this beginning, kind of the first time of what will be a pattern repeated and taught throughout Scripture about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, about what it means to walk with the presence of God with you. And this is big because the Holy Spirit is God with us. So as we look at what it means to be filled with the Spirit, my prayer is that you will experience the joy, the awe, the wonder that comes from sensing the presence of God right there with you. So Acts 2, we'll start in verse 1. We'll go to verse 11. Uh, the structure for today, I'm just going to walk through this passage and I'm going to pause along the way to point out, kind of a, give you a few points of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Basically just take the passage, try and apply it to us, both for you individually and for us as a church, okay? So Acts 2, verse 1, here we go. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Here's what I'm going to say. We're going to come back to this verse. All right. Um, that word Pentecost is super rich. Um, what all I need you to know right now is that this festival required Jews from all over the known world to come and gather back in one place. So all you need to know right now, we'll come back and talk more about it in a minute. Verse two, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Suddenly, just look, look, suddenly, because the Holy Spirit's not bound to anyone's timing. He's sovereign. He's free. You can't conjure him up. He comes when he's ready. You can be open to him and you can desire him as all believers should. And he promises to lead us and guide us and to dwell in us. But the Holy Spirit moves on his terms. Now, I want to make sure you understand this thing, because we could miss it, maybe, especially if you're familiar with the Bible, you can miss the wording here. This is not a cool breeze that fluttered the hair of the disciples like a shampoo commercial or something, okay? This, this is a sound, and the sound was like that of a violent rushing wind. Closest thing I got for you is like a tornado, 
If you've ever, if you've ever been close enough to a tornado to hear it, I've had one time in high school, right? I think it was like junior year. We're in high school. The tornado warnings go. We all run into the hallways to do our duck and cover routine. Like that's really going to help. And, you know, so we're there in the center block hallways and we hear this thing come over and it is so loud that we can't even hear one another talk. You know what I'm talking about? Like you can't even hear one another. The thing rips the AC unit off of the school building, throws it into the far corner of the parking lot. It's wild. And the force of the sound that was around us made us feel so small and helpless. That's the kind of sound we're talking about. God has shown up. And they're all experiencing this together. This isn't like some internal psychological experience they're going through. It's something coming from outside, coming from heaven down onto them. And listen, here's what I want to say about that. To be filled with the Spirit... And that's what we're talking about today. What are the, the signs that you're filled with the Spirit? What are the patterns we see throughout Scripture? To be filled with the Holy Spirit, you got to surrender yourself and receive God's presence in your life. It's to see God for who He is rightly and to be humbled by Him. That's the surrender part, that there's no way I compare to God. But here's the amazing thing. Unlike a tornado... God's presence is actually life-giving to you instead of life-taking. His power is indeed terrifying, but it's also good. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. How we don't compromise an inch on just the, the exaltation of the holy mightiness of God, how powerful he is. But then we have the audacity to say we need that presence with us. And so we surrender and we receive him. To become a Christian is to admit you need this outside presence to come in and, and fill your life. And here's why this is so big. When you think about it for just a moment, that idea directly conflicts with the cultural message of our day. You hear celebrity after celebrity tell you, yes, there are problems out there around you, but you have everything you need inside of you to conquer those problems. You just got to tap into the power you possess and you can make yourself better and you'll make the world better. Christianity says the exact opposite. Christianity says the problem with you is you. And the deeper you look into yourself, the darker and uglier you will see your sin to be. Christianity says you need something from outside of yourself to save you from yourself, to give you power to change into who God created you to be. The Savior is Jesus. The power to change is given to you in the form of the Holy Spirit with you, which means you got to let God in. Culture says you know what's best for you. Live your truth. Christianity says, no, God knows what's best for you. You're going to have to live his truth, not your own. Culture says you need to find your inner strength. Christianity says, no, you got to admit your inner weakness. Because when you are weak, then you are able to receive God's power. Which is why the Apostle Paul says weakness is your greatest strength. Because you're ready to receive God's strength. So the question for this first point of what we're talking about here and what it means to be filled with the Spirit is, have you surrendered to and received the presence of God? Here's the way you can kind of look at this. Listen, your prayer life will reveal your answer to that question. Because that's where you acknowledge your need for outside help on a regular basis. I've never seen a vibrant, Spirit-filled Christian with a dead prayer life. 
And the same is true, y'all, for a vibrant, spirit-filled church. And to that end, I want to tell you we're beginning a season of fasting and prayer as a part of this series through the book of Acts. One Wednesday, one, uh, Wednesday every month, and we're going to announce that date here soon, um, we're going to be fasting all day and then meeting up at our Providence Road campus just to pray together for about an hour and seek the Lord, to confess to God, seek his power with us. Let's keep going on to verse 3. It says they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Violent rushing wind and now flames of fire. It's a remarkable moment for this group because when God's presence shows up throughout the Old Testament, it almost always shows up with fire. When God first appears to Moses, he appears in a burning bush. When God leads Israel out of Egypt, was he lead them out of in a pillar of fire? When he comes down on Mount Sinai to give them the law, he comes down in fire. When he fills the temple that Solomon made, he comes first in fire. And y'all, listen, fire, it is hot. Okay? There's a little truth for you. Fire is hot, fatally hot. You can't touch it. It'll consume you. They knew, these guys knew, sudden fire that appears out of nowhere is likely indicating God is here now. They knew that this should consume them, and they're looking at one another, and they're seeing fire on one another's heads. They're not dying. Can you imagine the mix of emotions that must be going through these guys in this moment where the knowledge of God's presence transforms into the experience of God's presence? The disciples are now the burning bush. The presence of God is on them, but it's not consuming them. It's filling them. They're experiencing his presence and even coming alive. Listen, the Holy Spirit is dwelling now in every believer, and that is the source of great, great power. A power the New Testament letters continually look back to and how they shepherd the church. Paul tells the Corinthians who are feeling afflicted, they're feeling beat down and persecuted. He said, listen, our bodies are just jars of clay. But in those jars are incredible treasure and incredible treasure of great value. What is it? Far more powerful than what is happening to us is who resides in us. It's the Holy Spirit. When he's warning them against sexual sin, his reasoning is, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You can't treat your body casually because of the holiness and power and might of the one who is in you. The job of the Spirit is to come into your life and tell you about his love for you, his delight in you, his claim on you that you're his child. So we talked about last week with John 16. Jesus says that the Spirit will take the things that you know in your head and make them real to you in your heart. Here's the way I want to say this, um, just kind of another marking of walking and being filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit strengthens your belief that God's presence is greater than you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. This is for you to go home and meditate and reflect on, or maybe you can write it down right now. Listen, God's presence is better than, it's greater than the problems and suffering going on in your life, than the grip that sin might have in your life. And it's better than the the comforts that you're just kind of meandering through right now. God's presence is greater than all of it. Now, I do want to say something, though. I know there are times in your life where you just kind of got to believe your way through some pain, where you don't feel the closeness of God. 
Your experience with God might be cold or, or difficult. Maybe all you feel is anger or sadness. Uh, what I want you to know is that the scriptures make plenty of room for that. My wife is going through that right now as she grieves the loss of her dad. And she, uh, we talked about it and she said, yeah, you should share this with them. Um, and many of you know the, the pain of loss. And Courtney has told me, said she's got to choose to believe a lot of days that God's faithfulness is greater than her present circumstances. And his presence with her will sustain her. That's a truth that she has to believe to be true and not just wait on um, her emotions to catch up. She's going to choose to believe it first. That's not easy right now. But we believe the Holy Spirit is still God with her even in that moment. And that presence carries her in her pain. In verse 4, we're going to keep going. It says, they were, got these tongues of fire on them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is only getting cooler, all right? Um, this is like a very sacred moment in church history that we are looking at right now. God, the Holy Spirit, has arrived and since I'm saying filled with the Spirit a lot today, let me try and, and give a little clarification now, all right? There's a couple of meanings that come up in Scripture, and both of them are good. They're not in conflict with one another. One, when we talk about being fear, filled with the Spirit, is your moment of conversion, okay? This is where you come to place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What he did on the cross is a payment for your sins. He resurrected, defeating death, which means you're going to be with him forever, okay? You have new life in Christ now and forevermore. At at that moment, Christ says, and scripture says, you are filled with the presence of God with you, which is the Holy Spirit. He comes into your life, fills you, seals you forever, and his presence is guaranteed with you. Jesus is going to refer to this as being baptized in the Spirit. You're immersed into God's presence when you believe. That happens the instant that you place your faith in Christ. In fact, um, I was thinking about this this week. Um, when we baptize you with water, another kind of aspect of that symbolism is representing how you've been baptized into the Holy Spirit, who's now with you. You're immersed into God's presence, and God's Spirit is forever guiding you the rest of your life. But then there's a second meaning that Scripture will refer to a lot, that there are these moments where the Spirit who has already filled you comes on you and in you in a unique way to illuminate Christ to you and sometimes to others. Uh, Christians, we will say often that the Spirit manifests, is a word that we use, manifests himself to you. And that's a good thing that we welcome just like the early church did. We're not talking about an out-of-body experience. We're talking about the Spirit giving a, a fresh filling in the heart in such a way that knowledge of God translates into experience of God and joy and wonder and awe like you're standing before those mountains. Um, the, one of the best illustrations for this is an old one from a Puritan pastor from the 17th century named Thomas Goodwin. Um, I think I've even used this maybe with you guys before, but he likened this to saying, he said, you know, Here's what it's like. He's like, imagine, imagine you got a father and son, and they're just kind of walking down the street. All right, they're walking, and the father's holding the son's hand, looks at him, walking along. He says, and then all of a sudden, what that father does is he sweeps that son up into his arms, and he spins him around, he pulls him close, and he kisses him, and he hugs him, and Goodwin says, and then he puts him back down and they continue walking down the street. 
And Goodwin says, okay, in that moment where the son is wrapped up in the father's arms, is he any more of a son than he was when they were walking on the street? No, of course not. Legally, he's still just as much the son as he was when they were walking. What's changed? He said, in that moment, the boy is experiencing the father's love and experiencing what it means to be the son. And sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes down on you, you experience your father's arms. Now, how does that happen? How do you, you know it's happening? Listen, it's tough to put words to, and the scriptures don't give a whole lot of words to it, but it's when you're in the middle, what you kind of know is you notice that the things of your world and your life and your circumstances start to fade a little bit because the glory of God starts to carry a lot more weight. You sense he, he loves me. He holds me. He secures me forever. He's walking with me now. He promises me eternal life. I kind of think of it like the old hymn says it. You know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There will be this, the dimming of everything else as you just get, get immersed into the glory and grace of God. That's the Spirit of God speaking to you when that happens. Now, what about this word tongues? Also in verse 4, what does this mean? Great news. Luke's going to tell us right here in verse 5. Let's jump into verse 5. Now, I'm going to read all the way to verse 11, okay? Got a whole section here with lots of words that I might pronounce wrong. So, here we go. Verse 5. There were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, of course, the rushing wind and everything... A crowd came together and was confused because the, the crowd, each one of them, each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, wait a minute, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those living in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. You see what's happening? This is a miracle. These tongues being spoken or other human languages, this is a little bit different from uh, if you look over in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about speaking in a spiritual language and he uses the word tongues that is given by the Spirit that's part of that fresh filling and experiencing God. This is a different thing happening here in Acts 2. There are people from all over the world and they're like, wait a minute, those are Galileans. You could like say, like those are Gastonians. And... How are a bunch of, Ga I'm sorry, Gastonians, we love you guys, okay, okay, but it's a bunch of Gastonians like, how are these good old boys speaking fluent, excellent German, French, Spanish, Russian, etc., right? How is that possible? How am I hearing this in my own language? There's no way you know my language. This is a miracle. What are they saying? What are, what are the, the people with these tongues on their head, what are they saying? They're proclaiming the magnificent acts of God. What are those? They're the acts of salvation. 
Megalia is the word there. It means they're talking about the miraculous acts of God and salvation throughout Old Testament history. And then they're majoring on, of course, the saving work of Christ. And listen, this is what happens when the spirit fills you. He empowers you to speak joyfully about the gospel. Here's what I think is incredible about this moment. Listen to this. There's so many cool things. This is the first worship service of the first day of the first church. Now, one of the, I have been at the first worship service of the, of the church first day, right? We did this about almost four years ago now for Mercy Church. One of the realities most churches face when it launches is that it's only got one language they can worship in. When Mercy launched, we launched in English because I have a decent handle on English, okay? No surprise there. But here's the deal. The reality of being an English-speaking church is it automatically made ministry to non-English speakers a very difficult reality and possibility for us. But here's what I love. On the first day of his church, God refused to choose one language or culture to minister in. The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. You realize how significant this is. If the apostles had only spoken in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, there would have been the signal sent that the gospel was primarily for one people group. But instead, the Lord on Pentecost shows the world through a very deliberate miracle that no language and no culture has privilege over the other in the kingdom of God. That's beautiful. The gospel is for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And the first worship service is to the extreme multilingual and multicultural. And here's one of the things I pull from that, y'all, is a church filled with the spirit. It proclaims a gospel that is for all people. Let me give you two, two really cool observations in light of that. First, a biblical one and then a, a cultural one, okay? The biblical observation is what's happening right here in this moment is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Right. Technically pronounced Babel, but we're not going to say that. We'll say Babel, okay? Genesis 11, what's happening is people are all speaking one language, and they're all trying to build a name for themselves. Look at this. This is Genesis 11:4. They said, they all came together. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. And because they tried to build their own name, God cursed them in a miraculous way. He confused all their language at once so that they all spoke different languages. I mean, he sent them away. Now the Spirit of God at Pentecost has come again, but this time, coming after what Christ has done, listen, now God gathers all of his people back together, and he is allowing them through another miracle to experience unity through hearing one message, even though they speak different languages. And the purpose is to exalt one name, but not their name. It's the name of Jesus. You see what's happening. It's another example of how Jesus redeems what sin has destroyed. And now people who once couldn't understand each other and couldn't relate to one another, now they can be brought together again because the curse of Babel is reversed on the cross, which has implications for our role here as a church. Our role is to live out the reversal of the curse of sin that has set up barriers between cultures. Man. Curses 
that sin puts in all different ways can be healed through the lordship of Christ. And our role as the church is to live those out. Now, there's also a huge, that leads me to a huge cultural implication. I was listening to, um, you guys know that uh, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, very uh, impactful on me. Listen to him teach uh, from a while ago on this passage, and he, he actually referenced an African professor at Yale Divinity named Laman Sana. And Sana said that um, Muslims, he used to be Muslims, he said Muslims will quickly tell you that the Quran cannot be translated into any language. So if you have like an English Quran, you have an English sort of explanation of the Quran. But Muslims will tell you that the actual words of God, those are Arabic. And as far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. You want to hear God's word? You need to learn Arabic. And he said, what happens though is that then when Arabic is spoken and Islam comes in, what it will do is it will slowly suppress any culture that it comes into and replace it with an Arabic culture. Again, this is Santa's words coming from his own experience and observation. But he said, Christianity is entirely different. He says, the first time the gospel was preached, it was preached in all languages at once, showing that no, no culture is the right one. Instead, it enters every culture in its own language. And so when you get the Bible translated into your language, it is not an explanation of the word of God. It is the word of God. And thus, when the gospel goes into a place, it doesn't go in to erase the culture. It goes in to redeem it. Not to suppress it, but to lift it up and exalt it. He said, no other religion does this. Other religions tend to erase culture, but Christianity, it will take you out of your culture just a little bit, but only enough to see the false hopes that your culture is built on so that you can see how the gospel redeems it. But if you're Chinese and you become a Christian, you become a Chinese Christian, an African Christian, etc. It allows for incredible diversity unlike any other religion. And he said, this is great, as a professor at Yale, he said, it's not just other religions that miss this. He said, secularism does it too. He said, for all their talk of diversity, the diversity that they really want is only superficial things like dress and food. He's like, oh, we dress differently, so we're diverse. Or, oh, you eat different foods than I do. Wow, we are diverse. But as far as worldview, he said, you're expected to think and approach the world like them. His words, Harvard and Yale are really only interested in producing different colored European liberals. For example, he said, the average African sees a very spiritual side of the world. But when the African goes to Harvard, he's told that the world has no spirits and no miracles. Harvard is trying to tear out their Africanness. But Christianity, again, his words, helps Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Africans see the world as spiritually alive, and Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but removes the tendency in African cultures towards superstition and violence because it shows Christ as the victor over all evil spirits through love and service, not violence and manipulation. Christianity renews you as an African, but leaves you as African, where secularism will take away your core culture. And we could go on and do that for so many other cultures as well. What does this mean, though? Man, for us, it means we need to be sure not to think that my version of Christianity and my culture is the real Christianity, right? right? That 40 minute sermons that walk through the text, this is the only real Christianity. In Pentecost, God refused to let the gospel go out in one culture. 
And so one of the implications here for mercy, we got to continue to work hard to be as culturally diverse as we can be, because that's what the Spirit of God wants. And the churches in the world, y'all, the churches in the world that lift up the Holy Spirit, seek the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit are some of the most diverse, culturally diverse institutions on the planet. And we long for that, to honor the Lord, to reflect the one day of heaven and how we worship here. Now, I want to finish going back to verse 1. Back to verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Why, I started asking this question, why does God send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Why not the day before, day after, or whatever? There is incredibly rich symbolism here. Pentecost, the celebration, was a festival that was held 50 days after Passover, that's where it gets its name, when God had gathered the people to Mount Sinai, and in both cases, they're on Mount Sinai, and here we have what's happened at Pentecost, you have wind and fire. In both cases, Mount Sinai and here with the disciples, you have the overwhelming presence of God. It comes down, it frightens people, and in both cases, there's a message given from God to people. But on Mount Sinai, that message was a message of law, and the people feared it. They couldn't even touch the mountain. They had to send Moses to go up into the fiery presence of God on their behalf so that Moses could ask God for their forgiveness. That became Moses' role, stand in the gap between sinful people and the presence of God. They couldn't even bear to hear God's voice. But when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, it comes after Jesus has proclaimed and then carried out this wonderful message of grace, this substitution paying for our sins, the veil of the temple that separated people from the purifying fire of God had been torn top to bottom. And because the blood of Jesus washed our sins away, we can actually be in the presence of God. And we're now drawn to it. Here's the way I'll say it. The filling of the Spirit leads you to celebrate the greater mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. And now Pentecost, Jews from all over the world are being brought back into the presence of God. It was also, it went by another name, the Feast of Harvest, when they celebrated God's faithfulness by giving their first fruits to him. The result of Pentecost we're going to see next week. Peter preaches about what's happening here. 3,000 people get saved. They give their lives to Christ. They receive salvation, forgiveness of their sins, eternal life with God. This is God's power poured out for the purpose of harvest, spiritual harvest, bringing people back to himself, a people filled with the Spirit. That's what we long to be as a church. They're surrendered and receiving God's presence. They're brought to awe and wonder by his presence. They preach a message for all people, and they celebrate King Jesus. Is that where you are right now? Listen, maybe you're waiting still. Maybe you're trying to figure this out still. You don't feel the Spirit with you. Well, I'll just give, point you back to that little illustration from Goodwin. Remember the son walking with his dad. And take comfort that you are secure. You are filled by God's Spirit. And keep asking the Spirit to give you that fresh filling as you walk in the peaceful assurance of what Christ has already done for you. 
In fact, as we today end our day, we're going to be taking communion together. It's a great chance for you to remember again and be reminded God is with you. He loves you and he will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to pray for you and then our team's going to come up and lead us from there. Father, we thank you for your kindness on us that we don't fully understand with what you have given us in your Holy Spirit. So Spirit, would you illuminate again the eyes of our hearts in a fresh way that we might be drawn in to your great love, overwhelmed in a good way, in a, in a way that finds, that results in confidence and peace and assurance and joy because the presence of God is with us. God is with us. We gotta pray for Mercy Church. Help us to remain in that posture of receiving what you have done for us, recognizing we can't conjure it on our own. Help us to be in awe of your goodness, in awe of who you are. We thank you for your love in Christ's holy name. Amen.